Uh, so it's a joy to be with you this morning, and we'll be continuing in our series through the books of First and Second Samuel this morning, looking at First Samuel chapter four. So you could turn in your Bible to First Samuel four, and as you do that, I just want to share my heart with you for what I hope the Lord does among us this morning. My my goal for the outcome of the sermon this morning is that we would see who the real God of Scripture really is. Not the domesticated, safe God that we're hearing about in our culture and oftentimes sometimes in our churches, but the real God of the Bible. To see him for who he really is and then to respond as we ought. So that is my hope as we look at and dig into 1 Samuel chapter 4 this morning. Let's ask God for his help as we begin. We do pray, Lord, that you would, you would speak for your servants are listening this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. This chapter plays out, it breaks down pretty evenly into two different parts. So the first part is a situation. We've got a situation on our hands. And then two responses to that situation. So the situation is the defeat of the Israelite army by the Philistine army, the death of Eli the priest's sons, and then the capture of the Ark of the Covenant. That's the situation. And then the response comes from Eli the priest and Eli's daughter-in-law. So let's start with the situation. And here's what we have in terms of the situation. It's God's purposes fulfilled through judgment in verses 1 through 11. And here's the theme for us this morning. Ready? Let God be God. Trust him. It's very simple. Let God be God and let's trust him together. Um, Okay, so here's the story. Up to this point in 1 Samuel, we've been seeing a transition of leadership among the people of Israel. So the transition is from the priest Eli and his sons to a man named Samuel, who's going to be a new prophet. And it's a hard leadership transition in many ways. Remember, Eli's sons, whose names were Hophni and Phinehas, were worthless men who did not know the Lord. They, they trifled with God. And they gorged themselves on his sacrifices. And they they were taking advantage of God's people. And they were practicing immorality. And as we read, if we were to read right now through chapters 2 and 3, there's this heightening expectation that Eli and Hophni and Phinehas are going to be judged by God and that Samuel is going to rise up as the new leader in Israel. So, 
Now, as we're entering into chapter 4, we're wondering, how is this battle with the Philistines going to play a part in what's been going on up to this point with Hophni and Phinehas? So let's read. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, verses 1b through 11 of 1 Samuel 4. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies." So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Verse 5, As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that all the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So let's just recapture that story briefly. We read about, if you look in verse 2, there's an initial defeat of the Israelites. And the Philistines kill about 4,000 men on the field of battle. But it's about to get even bloodier. But in the meantime, a very good question is raised by some Israelite leaders in verse 3. So look at verse 3. And notice who the leaders of Israel address their question to. They address their question to one another. Why has the Lord defeated us before our enemies? Now, who should they have addressed their question to? They should have addressed their question to the Lord. Why have you defeated us before our enemies? And they should have looked to the Lord for an answer. And what's striking is that there's a clear answer to that very question in verses two or in chapters two and three. Their defeat in battle was because of unconfessed, unrepentant sin, particularly in Israel's leaders. And they were not addressing it, they were ignoring it, and they were not looking to God for answers. And perhaps like the Israelites, we today need to go directly to God and ask, is there any sin in my life that I've ignored 
and that I need to release my grip on. A habit of sin that I won't release or that is under the surface that I've just let go. And, and you talk to the Lord about that and have an honest conversation with him about that. Or perhaps it's not a, a particular sin for you, but we're struggling in life because we're simply not committing every day and situation and decision to him. The old hymn says it well, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry. And what's the next word? Everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. That's right. So these Israelites, though, they're not praying. And in their genius, they concoct a plan. Here's their plan. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord into the battle. Now, I want to just take a step back and ask the question, what was the Ark of the Covenant? I have a picture of the Ark up, and the Ark symbolized three vital realities in ancient Israel. And we find them represented in 1 Samuel chapter 4, and they can be summarized in three words. The Ark represented presence, relationship, and rule. Presence, relationship, and rule. So the ark was the central place where the presence of God and his glory dwelt or lived on earth. So back then, if you said, where is God? Well, he's in heaven. And in a special way, he's where the ark is. So the ark was the place where the people of God came to reverently worship their Lord and God. Second, the ark was the place that contained the covenant between God and his people. So there's actually a lid on that ark, and if you opened it, what you would find would be the law or the covenant. Well, what is a covenant? Well, many of us have been to weddings, and we see two individuals, a man and a woman, being married and making covenant promises to each other. So what's a covenant? Well, it's just, it's a lifelong relationship, a personal relationship. And this is what the covenant represented for the people of God. It was God and Israel and their relationship, their personal relationship with one another. Third, the ark was the place from which God ruled over his people. Look at verse four. It says it very clearly. This is the place of God's rule over his people. Indeed, he is King of kings and Lord of lords. So the ark was the physical symbol of all these precious realities about God. Presence, his presence with his people, his relationship with his people, his rule over his people. So the ark was a very sacred, very special thing. And then who do we find right by the ark? Think about the contrast. Hophni and Phinehas, these corrupt men with this sacred uh, symbol. This is not a good sign. So the Israelites bring the ark into the battle. The Philistines at first become greatly afraid and it's almost like 
these pagan Philistines get it more than the people of God. They fear, they know that the God of Israel is a great rescuing God, but the Philistines rise above their fears and they rile themselves up to be men and fight, verse 9. And the fight of the Philistines overwhelms the might of the Israelites who don't have the Lord on their side. In fact, the Lord is actually fighting in this battle against his true enemies who are the religious hypocrites of Israel, Hophni and Phinehas. That's who he's fighting against. So three results come from the battle. First, 30,000, just imagine it, 30,000 Israelite foot soldiers fall. The Ark of God is captured. And thirdly, the two sons of Eli the priest, Hophni and Phinehas, die in battle. Now that's the story. And what I want to do now is dig a little bit more deeply by addressing one central truth about God that rises to the surface in this part of the story. It's a truth about the absolute certainty of the word of God and the plan of God. That God's word and plan cannot fail. So let's think about the death of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And think about this question, who killed them? Who killed Hophni and Phinehas? Now this isn't a murder mystery. This isn't the game of Clue like it happened in the kitchen with uh, whatever. This, there are very clear answers to that question here. And there are actually two answers to that question. The first answer in a very short, straightforward way is some Philistine man drew his bow or pulled out his sword and struck down Hophni and Phinehas. But there's a second deeper answer to that question of who killed these men. And that answer is God did. God was behind the deaths of these two corrupt men. And it's very clear from 1 Samuel that it was God who orchestrated the, the deaths of these two men. You say, how do you know that? Well, let me show you very clearly in 1 Samuel 2, 25. So turn back a page there, 2, 25. Here, Eli the priest, he's talking to his rebellious sons and he's rebuking them for the, the miserable ways that they're living. And he says, if someone sins against a man, verse 25 of chapter 2, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. Now why? Why wouldn't they listen to the voice of their father? Because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So it's pretty clear there, isn't it? Who's, who's behind their death? It's the will of the Lord. And now we get to chapter four, battle with the Philistines. God accomplishes his plan. So we're to our main point now. God is fulfilling his word, his plan by judging Hophni and Phinehas and then establishing Samuel. And this same reality about God, if we dig into the, what happened with the capture of the ark, it comes to the surface in that part of the story as well. So let's dig in to the capture of the ark. So for all that the ark was, here's what it wasn't. It wasn't a good luck charm. It wasn't a tool 
to get God to do what I really want him to do. So the people thought, well, if we bring the Ark of the Covenant into the battle, surely God isn't going to take on the shame of defeat. So he, he'll fight for his own name and therefore he'll fight for us. It's a great plan, isn't it? God wouldn't allow himself the weakness of being defeated by the Philistine army, right? Wrong. Because what God is doing is he's proving the point that he will not be manipulated or controlled or used. God is fulfilling his plan. Dale Ralph Davis says it so well, what's going on here. He says, here was a pressure tactic, a way of, if you'll pardon the expression, twisting God's arm. That is not faith, but superstition. It is what I call rabbit foot theology. Remember those rabbit feet? The good luck charm. When we, whether Israelites or Christians, operate this way, our concern is not to seek God, but to control him. Not to submit to God, but to use him. Here's the point. God is God. And as God, he's fulfilling his plan for the world and even for our lives today. So the call on each of our lives is simply to trust this God with our lives, with the whole of our lives. Sometimes, if you're like me, we're tempted to, to take matters into our own hands. Perhaps we try to control situations because we're afraid of being out of control in our lives. And we want God to come in and fix things in the way that we think they should be fixed. Or we have, we have our preconceived plan for how we think things should go in our lives. And we might try to fit God into that plan. And we fight tooth and nail to get things to go our way. And then we can be frustrated even with God when they don't. And so we put expectations on God. We may think that God owes us something like a comfortable life. And for some of us, maybe our functional way of thinking goes like this. If I'm obedient or go to church or read my Bible enough, then God has to bless me with success or a long life or a comfortable life or whatever else. But God, but God cannot be controlled in these ways. He can't be used by us in these ways. We can't put God into a box. God is fulfilling his plans for our lives. That might be scary, but it's the reality. So what's our response? Well, our best response to this reality is to seek to bring our hearts and wills in conformity to his. To say, God, what you want for my life is what I want. And then to look to his word to say, what do you want for my life? And with open hearts to say, here I am, Lord. I want to follow you. This is what the Israelites were not doing. And it's our call to simply trust God with the whole of our lives. It's an invitation, really, because God is good and he has... <laughs> kind of cheesy, but it's true. He has a wonderful plan for our lives because Jesus died and rose again. And the wonderful plan that he has for us is eternal life. So we can trust in him because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
So the situation in Israel, 1 Samuel chapter 4, is this. Their men are killed in battle, their religious leaders are dead, and the ark of God has been captured by the Philistines. That's the situation that we have on our hands, and it's pretty grim. Let's see two responses to that situation. And what we'll see as we look at these responses is death because God's glory has departed in verses 12 through 22. And here's the theme for us. Let God be God. Worship him. It's an invitation to worship God. So let's follow along with me as I read starting at verse 12 through verse 18. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell, backward, fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now, the one thing I want us to see from this section is that what tips Eli over the edge, quite literally, is the capture of the ark. It's not the death, deaths of thousands of his own people. It's not even the deaths of his very own sons. What ultimately leads to Eli's death, what, what distresses him so, so deeply is that the ark of God has been captured. Keep that in mind as we continue to read, starting in verse 19. Verse 19 of 1 Samuel 4. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death... The women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Now, we can't know this for sure, but I wonder if Phineas's wife was a true believer in the Lord. I wonder if she, unlike her husband, really knew the Lord in a personal way. Which is why she was so distressed when she heard that the ark of God had been captured. But just, we, gotta, we have to put ourselves back here now. This is real life for a person. Imagine her life. 
She's married to a really dishonorable man. She's married to a man who has committed adultery multiple times and yet who at the same time is viewed by God's people as God's priest. Religious, very religious, and very corrupt. I can't imagine what she would have experienced. The pain, the betrayal, the darkness in her relationship with her husband. Dale Ralph Davis comments that she probably taught more theology in her death than Phineas had done in his whole life. Because she had something that her husband didn't have. She respected God and revered his greatness. So let's just quickly rehearse the story of Phineas's wife. She's very pregnant. And she hears news of two things. Number one, the ark of God has been captured. Number two, her father-in-law and her husband are dead. And the news is so troubling, it's so devastating to this woman that it actually induces her labor. So she's giving birth to this child and she's dying as she gives birth. This is a very sad, very traumatic scene that we have here. But we get a strong sense from the passage that it's more than just giving birth that brings her life to an end. More fundamentally, it's death by distress. It's death by terror. It's death, we might even say, by a broken heart. In fact, she can't even care that she's brought life into the world, her very own son. Look at verse 20. She says, it says she didn't even answer or pay attention when she was told that she, was, that she had born a son. Can you imagine that? Giving birth to a son and being so deeply distressed about something to the point of death that you can't even pay attention to the birth of your own little baby boy. She does, however, have the wherewithal to name the child. Now, naming kids is not easy. Uh, especially when you have two people with two different opinions. But my wife Rachel and I, we had a good arrangement because she liked a lot of names and I was the narrower. So I would look at her long list of names and say, I really like that one. And she'd say, I like it too. I picked it. I'd say, no, I picked it. But ever since we started dating more seriously in college, I remember Rachel brainstorming kids' names. And we look back and smile at those old lists of names that she put together. But do you know what name was never on any of those lists? You know it. It's Ichabod. She never had Ichabod on that list. Um, the name Ichabod means this, where is the glory? Or it can mean no glory. Can you imagine naming your son that? No glory. So here's the explanation. Verse 21, look at it. Why she gave her child this name, because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. Verse 22, here's the real issue for this woman. She said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. She's not focused on her father's death, father-in-law's death. She's not focused on her husband's death. She's not even focused that 
She's brought a baby boy into the world. She's not even focused on her own impending death. What is consuming this woman's mind is the glory of God leaving the people of Israel. Oh, why is this such a big deal? Well, Phineas's wife gets it. The ark symbolized the glory of God. And if we, let's just quickly trace the theme of the ark through First and Second Samuel and see how the, the, the glory of God is always tied to the ark. And so next week, we're going to look at uh, how the ark goes to Felicia and how it wreaks havoc there. And then the Philistines say, why in the world do we have this here among us? It's, it's killing us, literally. So they send it back to Israel. And in 1 Samuel 6, turn there real quick with me. Just turn the page if you need to. 1 Samuel 6, 19 through 20. It comes back to Israel. And here's what happens when it comes back. God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh, Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? This is the real God. Infinitely holy. Infinitely majestic. Let's keep tracing the theme. The next major time that the ark appears in First and Second Samuel. Do you remember where it is? It's in Second Samuel chapter six, and David is King David now is finally bringing the ark from where it was in First Samuel six, and he's bringing it to the city of David, to Jerusalem. And what happens in 2 Samuel 6 is that they're celebrating and they're rejoicing and they're worshiping God. But then this man named Uzzah, the ark stumbles a little bit and this man named Uzzah reaches out to steady it. And the Lord, he, he dies for, for doing that. And everyone, including King David, they're struck with fear. Who is this God? What kind of glory and greatness and awesomeness must he have? See, God is a God of great glory. He's not to be trifled with. He's even called the glory of Israel in 1 Samuel 15, 29, pointing to how different he is, how far above us this God truly is. And so our call is to worship him with reverence and awe, as Hebrews says. It's very important that we humbly treat God as holy and glorious and majestic and awesome. And here's what we need to see and even fear this morning. The glory of God, the presence of God, the activity of God can depart from a person or a group of people. We can become calloused to the greatness of God and treat him with flippancy and reject him through our sin and, and essentially tell God, I don't want you around anymore. And what happens in that situation is that eventually he departs. His glory departs. And this, 
This is one fundamental thing that the church in America has lost a sense of the majesty and holiness and awesomeness of God. Even we here at New Covenant Bible Church are being called into a deeper understanding and experience of the greatness and glory of God to repent of our deeply held sins. To experience the spiritual renewal of coming back to God. And it starts with desperation, it starts with prayer, and then an outpouring of God's Spirit. I don't know if you've heard about what's going on at Asbury, but essentially what's going on is spiritual renewal, a, work of, a special work of God there. And what it really is, is a re-reception of the glory in the presence of God. It's a humbling, it's an outpouring of God's spirit, it's a renewed seeing with the eyes of people's hearts the greatness and grace of Jesus Christ. He is real. And he is glorious. And he is life-changing. He's a real person. Timothy Tennant is the president of Asbury Theological Seminary, and he wrote just a powerful article about what's going on in, at Asbury right now. I'd encourage you to check it out. Again, it's by Timothy Tennant. He's the president of Asbury Theological Seminary. And I just want to close by reading several quotes from his article, but I'd encourage you to read the whole thing. It's so profound. He says, He's, he's explaining what's going on at Asbury right now. And here's what he says. There comes a point when the people of God become tired of casual prayers and move to that point of desperation which opens us up in fresh ways to God's surprising work. This is what I have experienced most over the past week in my life. He goes on to say, I've been in Hughes Auditorium or Estes or both every day and night, and it is like stepping into a flowing spiritual river. You sense the presence and power of God working in people's lives. Don't you long for that? He goes on to say, a deeper look at this outpouring reveals that it has the same elements which are found in any authentic revival. People repenting of their sins. People being filled with the Holy Spirit. Men and women finding reconciliation with God and their neighbor. People capturing a, a renewed love for Jesus, the gospel, and the Holy Scriptures. All of the above has been happening here day after day. Now what he says next is so vital. He says, we all love mountaintop experiences, but we also know that it must be lived out in the normal rhythms of life, at play and at work and at church and elsewhere. So he says, in short, we must embrace what it means to really live as Christians in the midst of a church culture which has largely domesticated the gospel beyond recognition. Now, this is the piece that encourages me, what he says next. 
He says, in short, it is not about this place or that place, whether Wilmore or any other city. And people have been flocking to Asbury, literally from around the world, to get a taste of this spiritual renewal. Because people are realizing there's such a, a deadness in our culture. And people want to experience the real Jesus, the real Jesus of Scripture, and the life that is there that can't be found anywhere else. And so he says, it's not about this place or that place, whether Wilmore or any city. It's about Christ himself. None of us, and a lot of people have been praying for this renewal at Asbury. But he says, none of us owns this awakening, but all of us must own in our own lives his work and his gracious beckoning to that deeper place. And we say, come Holy Spirit. And who knows what the Lord could do in St. Charles, similar to what he's done at Asbury, so that the impact of Christians who are following Jesus is significant as we go out into the world. Let's pray together. Father, we, we join Timothy Tennant in praying, come Holy Spirit, do a work in our lives that is deeper than what we could conjure up in our own strength. We need you to work in our hearts. And so we pray that you would do that specifically in each one and in an ongoing, increasing way at New Covenant Bible Church. We pray in the power of the name of Jesus. Amen.